Good morning. On this Bullet Question Crunch, Crowds artist Marie Soleil is here to answer questions about her career in Making Winter Come, James McAvoy's acting range, and the magic of making wet bears. <laughs> Um, your title, because uh, I was I was right right now writing. Uh, I just want to make sure because I was just going to title you as an animator, but I didn't know if there's a special term that you want. It's actually crowds artist. Crowds artist. Crowds artist is the actual title because animator refers to something super specific in animation, which is really the person who animates like the rigs or the characters. Um, in a in in a production, so it's like really people who do the animation themselves. I do simulations. Um, if you want during the, you know, to throughout the call, I can explain you know what it is because uh, I know. Oh, we're recording right now. It, so. I'm I am I am perfectly fine including this little bit okay. because it's actually really way more informative, way more inform informative than I was ready for. And I would love to hear more about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, animation is uh, really the art of doing the acting of characters itself. Or even um, inanimate objects. You can animate an inanimate object like a car or a prop. But like crowd simulations is more like giving a behavior to a crowd of characters or a group of characters. You, you program them a behavior you use animations that animator uh, that an animator is going to make for you, but then you program it into a behavior that makes sense for what you need. So you're going to have like many, many people doing the thing that you ask them to do. So like it could be people clapping in a crowd. It could be people walking down the streets. It could be a flock of birds. It could be like butterflies, bugs, um, even fish, like a group of fish, or it could be any any crowd, any group of characters is going to be what I do. So I rarely animate by hand, but it does happen once in a while that I will, like, I'll um, take a simulated character, but then I'll, I'll bring it into another pipeline and basically animate it from scratch or, like, um, add up to the animation, like, on top of what the simulation gave me to make it really special. So I will do that sometimes. Now, when I'm working with a, when I'm drawing stars or I'm drawing like spots on anything, I try to make it look as random as possible because that make that you know spreads out the spots. I can't, I don't want to make it uniform because then it gets boring. So you want to have it looking like it's spontaneous, like it's random. Correct. Is that one thing? Is that like a priority? Oh yeah, it's definitely a priority. When you do crowd simulations, the goal is to make sure that you don't recognize that it's fake. So you want to be as varied as possible, have as many different animations as possible, so you don't see twins, you don't see people doing the exact same thing at the same time. If you have that, then you kind of you kind of spot it right away, like, oh, these people are really the same. So it kind of breaks the suspension of disbelief that you have when you watch a movie. Um, and it's good for live action movies and animated movies or TV shows. Um, you need to have variety in the animation, in the speed, in the style. And then with that, that's usually a really good start. And then when you have like other variations that are related to other departments, like different body types, different skin colors, different clothes, different colors of clothing, hairstyles, um, facial hairstyles, then that's when you really give a lot of options 
and it's really going to be difficult to find even a character that's identical to another one. So the goal is to never really have the same twice. Do you have any examples of like uh, something that really sticks with you about repeats? Because I, I have two. I want to know if you have any. Well, examples like would be, you know, when you do a shot and you look at your characters, it really matters to us to make sure that there's no twins, that there's no exact same character that are close enough that you will notice that they're the same. But if the shot lasts a second and a half and there's two people that are very similar, but they're like at different corners of the screen, then it kind of goes, you know, because that's not the main attraction. That's not what people look at. Usually people look at the main characters in a movie or in a TV show. So the people in the background are really just there to dress, you know, the environment. Um, but it does happen sometimes that the crowd is the main character in a way, because sometimes the the goal of the story is to have the crowd direct the story or the crowd, the crowd's reaction or the crowd's action is going to be the leading um, element of the story at that moment. It does happen, but the goal is to really never have the same character twice. So you don't disconnect from that suspension of disbelief you had. I've got two examples. Uh, mm-hmm. One is Godzilla with Matthew Broderick. Um, mm-hmm. There's a part where they're leaving and uh, the two Godzilla monsters, they're walking and they're doing exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. So it looks ah. like they're it's just copy and paste. Right. And that always sticks with me. And the other one is, uh, did you ever watch the Spawn movie? I have not. The special effects look amazing throughout the film mm-hmm. until the end when he goes to hell. And there's an army of Spawns waiting for him. And they are all, <laughs> they all do the same exact movement at the same time. And it's just really, it looks like a really bad 90s screensaver. <laughs> you know, that's, that's for me, I wonder when that choice is made in a movie to have people really doing the same animation, I have multiple questions that go through my mind. The first one is, do they really wanted that? Is Was that an artistic direction that they chose uh, for that specific shot? Did they have an intention behind having the characters doing the exact same thing? Or it could also be a budget question and like oh i didn't have the budget to iterate many times that shot because our client you know was trying charging too much or whatever the reason is and they went with the first version that also happens i feel like it for spawn i don't know about godzilla but i know i I feel like spawn it was fine it was budget because uh i was really happy with all those i still like it it you know the cg in the beginning has aged because you know it's the the movie's pretty old um but it still looks pretty good at the beginning it's only when it goes to hell that you're just like oh i don't know what happened you took a sharp turn that's unfortunate it, you know when when it's the end of the movie and you're supposed to have it as a strong point you kind of want to make a good impression right uh, it's unfortunate i will have to watch it now that you're telling me about it i love to watch that because i do pay attention to crowds and movies and i am super like difficult and like picky about things like that so i will definitely look at them i really want you to watch spawn i don't know if i've ever wanted someone i don't know if i've ever wanted anyone to watch spawn more than i want you to watch it right now (laughs) (laughs) i'm writing it down so i remember (laughs) (laughs) because i i think that they still have a new spawn movie in mind but you know that's been a threat for many many years um john leguizamo even though i'm terrified of clowns uh, John Leguizamo's John Leguizamo's performance of clown was not that bad until he gets really clowny. Until like when he's a demon clown, 
pretty cool. I'm okay with demon clowns. It's fine. It's when they go too realistic clown, like really silly clown. I'm just like, oh, I'm out. I'm out. That's definitely terrifying. I'm also not a fan of clowns, so I do understand why you have that feeling. So what got you into animation? So Or, or crowd, crowd design. Crowd, crowd, uh, crowd like, artist. <laughs> like as a crowd artist. So I started, um, I went to school in 3D animation with the goal in mind of doing either lighting or layout. So lighting is when you add the the actual spotlights or the whatever the lights you need in your scene to eliminate um, the scene and the characters. And then layout is when you place a camera and the elements in the scene. And my goal was to do full CG animation production. Um, however, back in Montreal, where I'm from, there wasn't too much of an animation scene. It was very VFX centered. So we have a lot of um, foreign companies that do VFX work and also a few local ones. And the animation, although it was what I wanted, uh, it wasn't what's, it wasn't available for me in the job market. You know, when I graduated from school, um, there were no jobs for me, either in lighting or layout for a junior. And so I was doing VFX part-time at this uh, Quebec company in Montreal called Rodeo FX, and I was doing 2D stuff. So I was doing roto paint. Basically what it is, it's creating the mats and helping removing the trackers on a green screen and preparing the shots for the compositing artist to do the final com compositing with the, the added like matte painting and like new 3D elements that were generated in the scene. Um, so basically that's what I was doing, but I knew that was just an entry job and I wanted to do um, 3D, not necessarily layout or lighting. It was going to depend on what will be available in terms of jobs. And that's often the case. Um, you have an idea of what you want to do, but then it just, you know, it happens or not. You don't always decide what's available in the, in the job market, right? So I got an email. Uh, my partner at the time sent me this email. They were looking for somebody to help on the crowds in Game of Thrones season six. And there was only one artist at the time doing the work, but there was way too much work for one person. So they were looking for a helper and I jumped on the occasion. I knew nothing about crowds, but I went to see them and I wanted to switch to the 3D department. So I was like, listen, you got to give me a chance. I'll do it. So they gave me one week to train by myself because the other guy was too busy to train me. So I trained myself <laughs> using the online tools that were available. And after a week, um, the guy came to my desk and he asked me, okay, show me what you can do and I'll figure out what kind of shots I'm going to give you. I showed him what I could do and he said, you know, you know too much. You don't need to know all this for what I'm going to you know, have you do for Game of Thrones. And I was like, well, okay, cool, just give me a shot then. So I started and it went so well uh, that I totally loved it. You know, like the crowds was just something that was really fun because it was a, a mix of animation, simulation, and then um, creativity, and then technicality at the same time. So that's what got me into crowds. But you said you wanted to get into uh, being uh, doing environments and doing lighting. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the spark that said, you know what, that sounds like what I want to do, make fictional lighting? There's a really fun story that I like to tell people, and I did use that in my latest um, interview that I had for my current job. It's always a fun story because it really shows when you like something, it comes out well, you know, it shows that you like something. So I was doing my first ever crowd shot 
on Game of Thrones season six, and it's when uh, Daenerys Targaryen is uh, captured by the Dothrakis, and they're walking. You know, all the slaves are walking together, and then the Dothrakis are on horses, and then the slaves are walking. They had a few extras on set, which was um, somewhere in nature, or like in some desert or whatever. And then I, I like the I somewhere to, in nature. Somewhere in nature. <laughs> somewhere in nature. It wasn't inside. That's what I mean. It was outside. <laughs> and so I, I added crowds in between the live action characters because we really needed to fill the, the environment. And we showed this to the client. And then the client circled two people and he said, you know, I don't like these two guys because they don't walk in the same direction as everybody else. And like, they're kind of weird. They're odd. They have a weird walking style. Can you just delete them? And then I went back to my shot and then I realized that the two people he had circled were actually live action extras, were not 3D characters. And he wasn't able to make the difference between my crowd and the, the live action people. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Like that went well. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to tell the people on Game of Thrones, I'm sorry, that's on your side. <laughs> that's not <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, so, uh, like that's a really good story because that's when you're like, okay, like it came out so well that um, they couldn't make the difference between fake and real people. What, what your your problem was? Uh, you hate real people. <laughs> well, it turns out that those two people in the in the live action shot were really not walking in the same direction as the main characters, and it wasn't really making any sense. So. They ended up keeping them there because otherwise they would have needed to paint them out and it was going to be too expensive to paint them out. So just kept them there. <laughs> yeah. That's kind I, of, I'm sorry. That's when you know you like it. It's like, ah, yeah, that's where you story. What is the process of working on a project? So, like, Crowds is really in the middle of production. So you need to have characters. You need to have animation, you need to have rigging, and rigging is like the skeletal structure that animators use to move the puppet or move the character. Um, so that needs to be done. And then at the same time, there's other people that place the elements in the scene and that do the lighting and the, and the textures on the 3D objects. So we work somewhere after animation and somewhere before lighting. And so uh, the process is I receive animations from somebody, whether it's motion capture or whether it's hand animated cycles, like walking cycle or whatever you need in the shot, really. And then I program the behavior in uh, what the characters, like brains, we call it's their brain. So we program that. It's a visual programming structure. It's not really like hard code, thankfully, because I'm not good at coding. And uh, <laughs> and then I run a simulation um, that will fit the needs of the, the story at that moment. And what matters really is the story above everything else. And so we do that. And then I look at it. I look at the models. Does it look good? I get it evaluated by my superiors that tell me, oh, change this, change that. Sometimes it's good on the first try, but pretty rare, actually. There's always little things to tweak. And then once it's corrected, you send it on to lighting, and the lighting team is going to make you know make them blend with everything else and um and then it goes to final so after that it's done um so you said that uh someone gives you the rigging of the of the of the people or right. the crowd 
Yeah. Okay. Give me the animation. So I rarely do the animation myself of the cycles. Um, I used to do that. So back when I was doing live action projects, we would often do the motion capture ourselves. Um, I used to be responsible for the motion capture at the company where I was working for um, for a little while. So we'd be doing the motion capture of somebody walking or falling or whatever we needed. And then, um, especially on shows like Game of Thrones, like we needed to main, like, um, uh, how do we say? We needed to um, make the process like efficient because we had a lot of data to work with. So we would do some motion capture and then quickly I would um, transfer the data from the motion capture into our, our actual characters. And then I would clean it up because it's never really perfect on the first try motion capture. You always have little problems, so you fix the problems. And then I would use that as a base for my characters. So like if I needed them to walk, then I would um, apply that behavior of walking with the animation that I have. So it's kind of a kind of you. What's fun about crowds is that you use things from everyone else. It's really a collaborative um, I would say technique because you use animation from animators or from motion capture and then you use the models from the modeling department, the rigging from the rigging department, and then you send it on to another department after. You're never really working alone. You're always collaborating with someone else. I really like that. That's pretty awesome. Um, it's just that they give you the tools to use and then you fill up the scene. Correct. Yeah. You just you just try to make it look as organic as possible. Yeah, sometimes you need organic, sometimes you need super straight and robotic. You know, if you have a crowd of robots that need to be in perfectly straight lines, um, perfectly uh, animated, like in sync, then you can also program that. That's also that's all things you can modify, you know, to fit the need of the story at the moment. That makes sense because, like, uh, I, I mentioned that the Godzilla uh, creatures were walking simultaneously. They were walking in rhythm, um, and that looked weird. And every time I see that, it's it always uh, it sticks out. Mm-hmm. But I watch iRobot, and iRobot has a big army of robots, and they all walk the same because they're all robotic. But it doesn't it it's not a problem because they're robots, or the animator that worked on that, or the uh, the crowds artists that worked on that made it so that it doesn't look it's weird too i don't organic. want to say it's a, yeah too robotic <laughs> right too organic or too robotic you don't want to have something that's exactly exactly the same otherwise it's like if those robots really had no space for failure or um like no possible issues and at that moment you can kind of have an issue with that but sometimes they will give them a few frames of difference between each robot so that they're not exactly at the same time, but they're close enough so that it still feels believably synchronized for you. It's all about, uh, it's like dozing. You, you just, that little touch, sometimes it's the little touch that makes a big difference. I, uh, I, don't, I don't know if everyone is like me, or maybe you, maybe you do it because you work in that field. Um, I always look at the crowds. I always look at the background. Because a lot of times there's, uh, especially if they're actors, if they're not animated, if they're live action actors, it's my favorite. Because sometimes there's an over actor in the background and I, I, I get obsessed about them. Uh, they sometimes do silly things. It's funny. <laughs> the same thing with the Godzilla, Godzillas. Um, there's an actor in uh, Ghostbusters 2 
that over he's he's in the jail cell and he go he does all these hand gestures where I'm like, ah, oh, buddy. <laughs> that's you know like that's one thing that we're being told often in crowds is that you need to have a crowd that looks like it's working in the universe in that specific universe and needs to work however if you give too many um, unique gestures or an animation style that's a bit too pronounced it's going to attract your eye and it's going to distract you from the main character on the screen or the main action. And that's something we try to never do. We try to not do that. So it's all about maintaining a, a believable balance without taking the attention away from the main character. You can't have a character do something too silly because you're going to think that it's important to the story. And sometimes if it's not, then it's just distracting. <laughs> I, I I come to the same kind of situations with the comic strip where I'm just like, if it's not important to the story, we don't have to do it because it's mm -hmm. only taking up space. Don't worry about that shit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had sometimes issues where I wouldn't have the, the depth of field in the camera that I was using and like they'd be giving me comments on crowds in the background and I'd try to be explaining like, hey, are we even going to see them? And they'd be like, well, we see them now, so let's just correct the issues that we see. And then I would see the final render at the end, and it would be so blurry that we wouldn't even be able to distinguish people. And I was like, well, that's a lot of work I did for no reason. <laughs> so it's all about, like, you have to remember, are we even going to see them? Is the lighting going to be on them? Are we, like, or are they going to be in the shade somewhere, so we're not even really going to see them? It's all about priorities. And when you manage budgets, it really matters that you know what the look of the the final image is going to be like because you don't want to put too much money into something. And I say money, but it's also time. It's my time or it's someone, somebody else's time. But like when you talk, let's say, to a producer, they talk money. So it's like, are you going to put all that budget on something that's going to be blurry? Because we're not going to see it. So you don't need to do those finesse touch-ups for hours that cost you like thousands of dollars. You know, you don't want to do that. It's not worth it. If they made a uh, an intense reboot of any Hanna-Barbera cartoon um, and you were hired to work on the CG characters, um, what Hanna-Barbera cartoon would you pick? Okay, so that was a fun one um, to look for because when you mentioned that to me earlier uh, yesterday, I was looking at the list of the cartoons that they have because I did know some of them. And just as a background, when I was a kid, I didn't get to see a lot of those shows because they were in English. And um, I used to watch TV in French because it was my first language. And we only had a few of them translated in French so that I could watch and I could understand. So we did have channels in English, but I wouldn't watch them because I didn't understand what they were saying. So I know that the English speaking people in Quebec might have had like a better idea of what the Hanna-Barbera cartoons were. And I've watched a few of them, and amongst the few of them that I've watched, there was Yogi Bear, there was the Flintstones, um, I believe the Jetsons a little bit, but not that, like, Scooby-Doo, but Scooby-Doo was later. So I don't know if Scooby-Doo was purely Hanna-Barbera or if it was more like Cartoon, Cartoon Network, I'm not sure, or Warner Brothers. I think it is Hanna-Barbera. It is Hanna-Barbera. I would say... You know, we've seen adaptations of Scooby-Doo, so even if it's a fun one to mention, it's already been done. So what I would say would be fun to do would be Yogi Bear. And it's fun because 
Yogi Bear is this character that has like very anthropomorphic um, like behaviors and it's possible to make really good looking bears when you look at things like Paddington um, in the in the recent adaptations they did. Paddington looks amazing, really, really good. So that's definitely some style you could explore for Yogi Bear, but then it's fun because you can put clothes on Paddington and it looks good. So I think that you could do the same for Yogi Bear and um, it could be great. You could do that as a full CG uh, production as well. So have like cartoonish um, humanoid characters and have like Yogi Bear as a... As a I, I would love a terrifying Yogi Bear. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't thinking terrifying. I was really thinking um, family-friendly, cutesy it, for kids kind of thing. But you know what? Like, I'm willing to explore that idea. If you want to talk about a like terrifying Yogi Bear. But they, but they've done a family-friendly Yogi Bear movie uh, with Dan Aykroyd as Yogi Bear. I'm talking about well, it might be just because it's August, and well, when this no, it'll be still it'll still be August. Um, Halloween is just around the corner. And so my mind, when I said intense, I was like, horror, right? A horror action right. film. Right. And I just picture, uh, I just picture a zoom in on the ranger and the ranger like cocks a gun and he's like, <laughs> this bear is smarter than your average bear. <laughs> and then you could have a, um, Leonardo DiCaprio kind of scene with Yogi Bear being, um, particularly aggressive. <laughs> um, you know, the, well... You know, I I guess that could be a thing. Yeah, that could totally be a thing, like a horror spinoff. <laughs> I think the bear that I thought when I thought of a horror film, uh, and uh, horror is such a strange word for me because like I have speech impediment, so I, I have difficulty with R's. But uh, a scary movie um, with a bear that I was thinking of was uh, the new the bear from New Mutants. Oh, New Mutants. I, I don't think I've watched it. It's okay. It was it was a movie that was in limbo forever. Okay. And then uh, it finally got released on, what was it? I think it's on HBO Max now. Yeah, it's on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. And I watched it. I'm like, ah, buddy. <laughs> oh, no. Were, uh, you, were you happy about the looks or what was, was, what was that? What was the thing that made you react like that? It was just, it, it was, it was not really a cohesive story. It was just very strange and disjointed. Um, oh. The horror elements were fun, and the mutant powers were cool, but they're just um, weird character, I don't want to say developments, uh, jumps. They're okay. just like weird, like, um, if you watch the original Suicide Squad, where the guy's like, uh, they're my family now. I'm like, yeah, but a few seconds ago, that you hated them. Mm-hmm. What what happened? Oh no, the story isn't constructed uh, super solidly. I'm guessing. Yeah. Okay. But the well, bear was scary. I love the bear, <laughs> and that's what I thought was with the yogi. <laughs> okay, okay, I like that. Well, um, otherwise, I was thinking about the Jetsons and the Flintstones as well because they're they all have those super um, like funky elements that would make it really interesting like the dinosaurs reacting like pe- the pits in Flintstones and the the car that you have to move with your feet like I think you've got a lot of things you could do with this like you can't you can't really do that I mean there were live action adaptations of the Flintstones that I have watched uh, that were great uh, but like having the the 
animal or dinosaur characters being really well made in CG, or even have a 2D look like in like the recent adaptations of uh, Tom and Jerry or uh, to the Spider-Verse or things like that, like have a, a 2D element added to the 3D rendering. That could also be super fun, you know, but it's still CG, it's still animated. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot, oh, Jetsons would be awesome. <laughs> I, I would want a cyberpunk type Jetsons. Like oh, yeah. Like, I'm still going intense and scary. And I, <laughs> you know, I'm okay with that. I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> this uh, in, like Blade Runner Jetsons. Yes. <laughs> Correct. That's that's what I want to see. <laughs> um, I <laughs> with Rosie. Bong, bong, like, <laughs> um, I remember uh, we were talking about in in not not in this recording, uh, but we were talking about Beauty and the Beast, watching Beauty and the Beast, <laughs> and you coming to the song Bonjour and not knowing that it's spoken in English, like, <laughs> yeah, and. Yeah. That's that's such an interesting thing, like going from a going from a, your your first language and then watching media and be like, oh, they are that's what French sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you watch, I mean, it's it's the thing about growing with a different language um, than the original version of whatever cultural element you're watching. Like, not every tv show and movie i have watched was originally in english so there was some of them that were originally in french but most of them were originally in english so for me i had a new it was almost like a new experience when i was good enough in english to understand the language or even um old enough to understand that i could watch like a japanese anime in japanese and have the subtitles i don't speak japanese unfortunately but like as i got old enough to rewatch the the cultural content in its original language, it was like a new experience because it's not always translated super um, precisely to the original message. And what happens sometimes is that the message is actually quite different. So things like in the Disney songs were sometimes translated with... So here's the thing with like French, uh, French Canadian language and like French French, um, they often had two different translations and the French French is often uh, really far away from the original meaning because they put the emphasis on uh, the rhyme and the flowery lang language but in Quebec um, it's a habit in translation that they would try to stay closer to the original meaning of the words but then it wouldn't sound as cute or it wouldn't sound as pretty in the songs. And um, that's a criticism we get from French people when they watch the Quebec dub versions of the movies. They're like, well, that's ugly. And I'm like, well, that's that's accurate. <laughs> you have <laughs> ugly, a but song accurate. that means something else and it changes the story to me. Uh, but sometimes I would watch the, you know, either the French version or, or the French Canadian version and then watch the original in English after and be like, oh, oh, OK there is a significant difference in the, the message or the meaning of whatever was happening on screen. And it was like a new experience. So it's kind of fun, like things like Beauty and the Beast. For me, I didn't realize it was, when I was a kid, I didn't know it was in France. Because they said bonjour, and I was like, okay. <laughs> like, they just said well, duh. <laughs> Yeah, of course they say bonjour. <laughs> and to me, I was like, yeah, okay, I don't know where this is. 
some imaginary land. And like, as I grew older, it was like, oh, Beauty and the Beast is definitely a French story. Oh, <laughs> 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 or like even the Hunchback of Notre Dame or Notre Dame. I was like, oh, right. That's right. It's in Paris. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> like, yeah, but I feel like that one makes more sense because yeah, they have the actual really structure to tell you where they are. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like... From the first song. Yeah, but with Beauty and Beast, even though there's, you know, there, there should be some uh, architectural indicators, they're not that, that you know, that, that's, that's telling you where approximate it is, but it's still a fantasy land. It's fantasy... To me, it was fantasy European land. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know where. It was either Germany <laughs> or England. It could have been anywhere. But Yabba Dabba Doo was, was consistent, right? In every translation, Yabba Dabba Doo was in there? Yes. Good. Yabba Dabba Doo. I've I've told people that I, uh, as a kid, I didn't really uh, understand Yabba Dabba Doo until I grew up. And then Friday night when I go home from working. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be saying it? It feels like it. It's like, oh, thank God, it's Friday. All right, I get to, I get a weekend. I'm like, yeah, but damn it. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Um, I no. found your IMDb. Uh, oh, you because I have. Uh, that's what I do. I, I like um, <laughs> I like to find stuff online, and I found your IMDb, and you've got a hell of a list of stuff that you worked on. Uh, yeah, but thanks to VFX. Yeah, of course. Uh, because you mentioned Paddington Bear, and I'm like, aha! <laughs> uh-huh. I have worked on the hair of Paddington, actually. <laughs> I've simulated Paddington's hair underwater. In Paddington 2, there is a shot where, and I don't really want to be a spoil, so spoiler alert, there's a shot where a train goes um, like off a bridge and falls in the water, and Paddington's inside the train and can't get out. And... Um, there's people that come and rescue Pennington, of course, you know, there's nothing tragic happening, but like there's when Pennington is underwater, there there was simulation to be done on the hair, because of course the dry hair versus wet hair definitely doesn't behave the same way physically. Um, so we received the hair model from the main company that does Pennington, which is called Framestore. And um, I had colleagues who recreated the, uh, so, they were using software that was specialized in effects and they recreated the solver, like the hair solver, which basically means the way the calculations are made for the physics of the hair. So super advanced math, super advanced physics, uh, physics of fluids, physics of, you know, motions of objects and, and flexibility of objects, which is the hair. In that case, like super advanced VFX, I could not do that myself, but I was working with a bunch of very intelligent people and one of them made that for a couple months. And so I took that setup that he made and I simulated the hair to make it look as realistic as possible um, underwater. So like you remove some gravity, you, you know, you kind of add like fake winds to make like if the when Paddington is moving so that there's like currents of water that influence the hair, make little waves like that in the hair. It's really pretty. And like the shots were work really well. It came out really pretty. I think Rodeo was nominated for for that, actually, for the effects on Paddington. It was really beautiful. That is a lot of work for a Paddington bear. <laughs> well, Paddington 2 was you know, had really, really good critics. 
Um, mm. People loved it. People who love Paddington have grown up with Paddington. They've loved the first one. They've really loved the second one. And I thought the movie was so wholesome. Um, I didn't know Paddington. I didn't grow up with Paddington. So for me, I was like, okay, I'll just, of course I'll work on it, you know, but I don't know what it is. And then when I realized the, the, the amplitude of the cultural phenomenon that is Paddington, I was like, really appreciative of what it was. I was like, wow, okay, that's actually pretty cool. And it's a cute bear. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's such a cute bear. Cute bear. It's funny because, like, I, it's weird because I don't have this huge attachment to Paddington, but there's so many elements of his story that I just know. Mm-hmm. And that kind of feeling of just knowing stuff, like when he's talking about marmalade, um, okay. there's just, I, I don't know, there's something weird where I'm like, I don't remember too much reading about, but there's, there, uh, the, the, the fact that I know stuff about him without remembering how, that says something about a character in pop culture. Yes. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I knew more uh, from the 2D, you know, Paddington books than from anything animated that existed before I worked on it. Um, have you seen video of like a uh, water in space? I have. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I have. Okay. Uh, when I was volunteering at SIGGRAPH, which is, um, you know, the world's biggest computer graphics uh, conference, we were trying to, well we actually got to get the company from montreal called felix Epol who sent the first 360 camera to space to film inside the international space station and they filmed a small documentary in collaboration with time magazine and it's already out there and it's a vr experience if you have a vr headset you can go on the space explorers um, website and you can actually visualize in 3d space the International Space Station because they had this fancy camera that they sent to space. Um, and basically, I watched some of it at the conference, and I know you you can watch it um, even without the VR headset. It's just that it's way more immersive if you use a VR headset. But basically, there is astronauts in in the footage that you know use their water bottles, they use their stuff, and like you have that right in front of your face, right? Because they did it right in front of the camera, and, like. It looks fantastic. It looks like so weird, like gelatinous, you know, lack of gravity. It's, it's, it's fantastic. I think it's pretty cool. I remember seeing a video where people were asking questions, uh, like popular questions about uh, astronauts. And they had like a, a sponge and they squeezed the sponge and the oh, water yeah. would stick into their hand. Right. And I, think I, even, I think I mentioned it on a podcast <laughs> an earlier episode, but I just really am fascinated about how things handle anti-gravity, like the lack of gravity. And mm-hmm. water, when you said that uh, you take off the you take off gravity when Paddington's underwater, and water is so bizarre in space. And I, I'm, I don't know, I don't want to say I'm traumatized or I'm scarred, but it's something that I will, th- that I think about way too often. <laughs> you know, like they do, like astronauts do a lot of their training underwater, especially yeah. in order to familiarize themselves with floating around. Um, they have. I know they have a lot of training underwater, so like that's definitely a, f- a interesting like parallel, like seeing them training underwater and then seeing how water behaves in space. It's it's super fascinating because it looks like they're almost underwater. The hair is floating everywhere. It they could you know you could add a blue filter on it and you'd be like oh you're in a pool. <laughs> uh, but- <laughs> uh, if you if you ever see me uh, disassociating at a party, I'm often thinking about water in space. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll um 
I'll bring it up next time. Cool. You just see me staring <laughs> off in the distance. Are you in space? Are you yes. In space? Uh, water in space. Um, so what was the one of the most frustrating things you've animated? Unless you've already mentioned it. In which case. <laughs> I haven't. I mean, there's always challenges. Every project has its own challenges. And when I think of things like Game of Thrones, which was definitely the biggest crowds I've done. Like I was working on the, the White Walker coming to the wall in season seven and like we had a we had a crowd of of uh, tens of thousands of characters and the biggest crowds I've done on this project was 120,000 characters and technically could have been done um, in a much simpler fashion than what we did but like that's the way the client wanted they wanted to have 3d objects rather than than cards or whatever and like since the cameras were moving so much, we needed them to be a 3D shape. So I did crowds of, you know, that literally, there was one test I did, um, the geometry I knew was too heavy. And I had mentioned that to my supervisor back then. And I was like, hey, we need to have a, an optimized geometry for this because it's not gonna work. We're not gonna be able to render any image of that crowd because we have like 120,000 people. And he was like, let's just try one frame and see how long it takes. And so that was a Friday night, but I was going to go to work on Saturday to do overtime. Hello, VFX. That's what it is. You go to work on Saturday very often. And um, I get to work on Saturday, and then there's people there already, and they're not able to work because the servers are down. Like, everything's frozen. And I'm like, oh, what's going on? And they're like, well, everything's so freaking slow. Like, I don't know what's going on. Nobody can work. Blah, blah, blah. Like, they had all these people come on a Saturday to work, and nobody was able to work. And then somebody comes to my desk and tells me, um, you know, Murray, there's this thing on the farm that's calculating, and it comes from you, and it's slowing down the whole server. Like, we have to kill it. What is it? And I was like, oh, no. That's the 120,000 people I'm trying to simulate for one frame. And then it was crashing the whole server. And they had to kill it, of course. Um, after like an hour and a half or something, they were able to reboot everything, the whole server. Uh, basically, I killed the server thanks to Game of Thrones, the White Walkers. Damn, and, uh, when they said winter is coming, I didn't know there was uh, Winter was coming to the servers. <laughs> <laughs> so that was definitely a challenge. Uh, we had to find a solution, and the solution was to have optimized geometry, like I had said. <laughs> I'm I was like, always, yeah, you know, like I told you so was definitely one of those moments. <laughs> like, <laughs> I told you so. Listen to me, okay? I know what I'm talking about. I don't think I'm ever gonna see winter is coming the same way again. I'm just gonna say server is crashing. <laughs> yeah, and you know, like the, I know what kind of budgets they have for things like that and if the company cannot operate for even just a few hours that's like a lot of money <laughs> lost <laughs> so i'm like oh i don't want to be i don't want to lose my job you know what i mean <laughs> but we were only two on the project we've always only been two people working on game of thrones doing all the crowds so uh, losing one person would have been very difficult to well not only replace but it would have been a tra tragedy for the other person because it's too much work for one person but then crowds is a super niche kind of subject or or uh i would say like field of 3d animation it's super specific and like it's kind of rare 
It's actually, you cannot find crowd artists um, everywhere. It's difficult. So it's an advantage for artists because it's easier to retain a job, but it's also a double-edged sword because if you lose your job for whatever reason, then um, it's, it might be hard finding it. You know, but if some if some company's looking for a crowd artist, then you can negotiate that because it's a rare thing to have a crowd artist. So you can negotiate better. What makes it so rare? It's the fact that it's not taught in schools. Um, it's not a discipline that's super common, like because not every project, not every movie is going to have crowds. Um, it's it's kind of a super specialized thing. Like you need to know a lot about animation you need to know a lot about rigging you need to know a lot about texture shading and rendering and it's super technical and the software that you use is not always super easy to master so it takes a while to learn um, some are easier than others or some are more user-friendly than others but there's software like the one that weta the company weta digital developed for um, the lord of the rings it's called massive and this is a software that takes on average like almost a year just to get really used to just to really understand how it works so does a company have that much time to put on you to just get adapted to the way it works and there's other companies that made sure their software was really going to be um like more user friendly i should say and like those ones, you know, only take a couple of weeks to get used to, but still. I mean, you train, you, you, you pretty much trained and got ready for a job in one week. And then the boss was like, uh, you know, you know more than you need. <laughs> right. The, I knew more than I needed for the, the test that they were going to give me, which was true, <laughs> which was true. But it paid off in the end because eventually I got to do the extra things that I had learned and I had not um, practiced you know, assistant. So it's, yeah. Sometimes you're going to have like the people who do the brain development and the people who do the shots are going to be different people because it doesn't require quite the same skills. One of my favorite things is when you showed us, because uh, we were in a Zoom and you were showing us uh, Final, uh, Final Fantasy, uh, Fast and Furious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought that was amazing. And I, I figure, I, I think I told someone that I thought that that was um amusing and so strange to do a job where it's just adding atmosphere and elements into the shot mm -hmm. and i'm like that's so i don't want i don't want to sound insulting saying it's so bizarre but i love seeing thinking about the the minute details that no one really thinks about but they are necessary to yes. make it look real oh yeah if you saw the raw plates of movies half the time it would be empty it would be either just blue screens just green screens um or or you have a set with like things that are close to camera are going to be there on set so you're going to have rocks cars trees whatever that are close to camera but everything beyond that beyond a couple meters is not there it's just empty so you need to add those things and it's super invisible and what makes a good vfx is that if you don't see it, if you don't know that it's computer generated, or if you don't know that it was added in post-production, that means it was well done. So a lot of the times people don't realize that what they see in the movie is actually just, you don't, you don't have any of that on set. It's just a, just a few meters worth of environment and the rest is all CG.
And it's it's funny when I told them that I thought it was weird or bizarre, and I think that a lot of people think uh, have negative connotations of weird and bizarre. And I'm like, no, no, no. I think weird and bizarre is a good thing. I think that that's amazing because I feel like there's a lot of jobs that people don't think about in the production. They're just like, oh, that's the actor, writer, director. And I'm like, yeah, but there's so many other people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people, I mean, sometimes it takes a while if you are motivated enough and you keep watching the credits at the end of a movie. Um, if you have the patience for it, you will see what people do. Sometimes they have like uh, the titles, so like lighting artists, like compositing artists, or CG artists, 2D artists, whatever, they're gonna have the titles that they decide to put on the credits, but like there's hundreds of people who do post-production in movies, especially the big Marvel and like whatever blockbusters that it, that exist nowadays, you do have a a list of people like they will have like 20 vendors and the in each of the 20 vendors you will have dozens of people if not more working on the production so it's like hundreds of people automatically just working on, on one single production like for for a few months at a time and then like boop, movie's done so i know like, if i if i manage to see your name in credits i will let out a woo a big old loud <laughs> woo. yay and uh that will happen <laughs> i don't see myself going to the movie theater anytime soon but because oh, uh, there would be that random guy going like just the credits going like whoa um i know on you know on streaming services i will holler uh not it chapter two i don't well you i think you were it says I, my on, name was not in there i i didn't work cool. enough hours to put my name in there good I don't want to watch it again just to go woo. No, you don't have to. I didn't even watch it myself. I was like, nope, nope, nope. nope. Uh, and it's it's not even because it's a scary movie. I just, uh, It Chapter 2 is not as good as It Chapter 1. Uh, the special effects were great. I'll give you that. Uh, the, the digital effects were awesome. It's just the story was not so much. <laughs> um. What are uh, what are some of the programs that you would recommend to someone who wants to get into your field? So my field is super specific, and it's hard to get the free versions of software to practice. So sometimes, if you're lucky enough, you can get a student version of either software, like whether it would be, you know, Golem or Massive or um, Houdini, or it could be Maya, or it could be, you know, different software, but you can get student versions often of any package that exists. But if somebody knows nothing about 3D animation, so like, like I said before, like Crowds is a mixture of a combination of all the, almost all the other um, disciplines in 3D. So you need to be somewhat of a generalist to be able to at least approach the discipline of crowd simulations, because you need to know about animation, about shading, texturing, rendering, um, you know, motion capture if you have to, and then simulation, and then physics. If you're going to do physics in your crowds, like you need to know about uh, behaviors of people or behaviors of animals. If you're going to do a horde of uh, like bisons running on a field, you need to know, you need to look at references, you need to look at how they behave, um, things like that. It's always like about learning about what you want to do to make it look as good as possible. But like in terms of software, I think. The software is a tool, and I know it's super cliche to say that, but like a software is a tool, and you can learn a tool, 
but what matters the most is you understand the principles behind what the software is making you do. So if you understand the principles behind the 3D thing you're doing, at the end of the day, any software can be learned. Um, like it's a super common question for people to know, like, oh, I want to get started in 3D animation or 2D animation, what software? I'm like, well, I've got like they're all good <laughs> they're all great so if you want to learn blender it's a free one it's open source it's uh it's got a huge community online a lot of documentation online a lot of tutorials on youtube and other websites and so that's a great one to get started with 3d animation if you know nothing about it um otherwise if you are studying in school already you already know a little bit about 3D animation and you want to do crowds, well, then you can um, talk to, I would recommend Gollum. That's probably the one that I find the most user-friendly. And um, I think they do sometimes give, I think they do have a program now where they give a student license for, oh yeah, they do, educational license, and it, it will allow you to practice with them. Like maybe you're not going to be able to render uh, full resolution, um, or you might not be able to render with all the textures on your characters, like some of them are going to come out gray shaded. But for practicing crowd simulations, that's definitely, I would say, a good start. I tend to recommend that one because it's easier. And Massive Prime is another software on, on the market that's extremely expensive. So it's definitely not for like, um, you know, Marie down the street who wants to learn about crowds like no don't get massive you're gonna cry uh, <laughs> but if you want to get houdini if your school has houdini well then use houdini because the the their crowd tools have become so much better in the in the you know recent versions that it's definitely a good option as well um which actor should pay aside from animation <laughs> and visual effects um which actor should play Rachel McAdams' next toxic love interest? Okay, listen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting ready. Sure. I'm not sure, but like I was trying to think about an actor who could be an, like a same age group uh, or a similar age group. And then that could do like a character that completely shifts around in the movie or in a TV show that initially you're like, oh, that's a good guy. And like, turns out he's a pure, like, you know, he's a total asshat. Um, I was thinking about James McAvoy because he's got this super charming attitude. This like really, you know, like elegant kind of, uh, I don't know the bit, but he's so, he's so good at making, at switching attitude and this is such a good I, call i say that because i watched i think it's called split is uh -huh. it split, the movie split. with uh from from n and uh, yes sorry i keep butchering this every time i try and in in this movie james mcavoy plays a character of a person who's got multiple personalities and the switch between the different personalities is instant and it's natural and it's freaking mind-blowing and i loved it so much because i thought the acting was awesome um so i figured you know if it's a toxic relationship it doesn't always start as a toxic relationship you know it starts as something romantic cute good guy kind of you know you have a good feel like a, you know the guy is like kind of a you know flirty whatever and then it turns out he's a he's a douchebag so i think 
I think he could play a good character like that. Well, I feel like a lot of her love interests in movies, uh, they are charming. And then uh, the toxicity is very subtle or acceptable, I guess. <laughs> um, because mm-hmm. you had uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Sherlock. Uh, mm-hmm. you, the thing that made me think about this question is Eurovision with Will Ferrell. Because he seems like a pretty nice guy and he redeems himself in the end. But throughout the film, he's, he's a really toxic asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what was it? Um, from Notebook, what's got Ryan Gosling? He was mm-hmm. kind of a he was kind of a dick throughout that movie. Um, but oh, McAvoy is a great choice, a great casting choice. Because uh, have you watched the movie Phil? Uh, have I watched Phil? I don't. I don't remember. I mean, I know the title. It's but... it's it's where he plays the worst kind of person. He's just really disgusting in that film. I don't remember. I don't remember that one. Maybe uh, is... maybe I have not. It's not for the faint of heart. It's very, uh, <laughs> he's just, he, he's the kind of character, I think he's a corrupt cop. I'm trying to remember all the details oh, of the movie. No. Oh, but he's kind of like, no. he's kind of like the character from Clockwork Orange, but if he was a cop. That's like the worst combination I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like horrible. I don't want to watch it now. I'm definitely not writing it down. That's what, that's why. I don't have my opinion of James McAvoy. Unless the character you know, gets better uh, throughout the movie. But, like, if, if I'm going to see him as a bad guy the whole time, I'll just be so sad. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert. He does not get better. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's definitely one of those films that you're just there to, uh, I don't know, enjoy watching a horrible person be horrible and keep getting worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, um, I, I like that. I, I, I always tell people it's not for the faint of heart, and it's because it's just, it's gross. Um <laughs> Um, what is, uh, one of your favorite animated sequences? Now, it doesn't have to be something that you worked on, but it could be any oh. movie, show, whatever. Oh, I have so many of them, but it's, oh. okay. I was thinking, you know, like, I was thinking about that yesterday. Yeah. But then I had a realization, it was something that really cemented my choice to do animation rather than GFX, um, in life as a career. And that short, it was a short called Paperman by Walt Disney Animation. Paperman was like the precursor of the 2D style of rendering over 3D animation. So it was when it came out at the SIGGRAPH, at the conference where I was volunteering at, um, it was in the Computer Animation Festival. That's the first time they showed it. And it was like that Computer Animation Festival is super um, uh, professional, like in the sense that like there's no recording allowed like we the volunteers were making sure that nobody recorded because those things are it's actually a, an academy qualifying festival so if you win a prize at the computer animation festival of SIGGRAPH you are eligible to get an Oscar potentially so it's definitely a big deal of a festival so they showed Paperman there and I watched that as a student you know I was in my first year second year of of um 3d school and my jaw dropped when i saw the 2d style over 3d animation i was like what is going on over here um and the animated sequence that i liked the most was when the little paper planes become alive like super fantasia you know kind of the brooms coming alive in the the apprentice apprentice, you know magician you know, with Mickey Mouse, like the brooms coming alive. Well, that was a paper plane. Coming oh, you can, alive tell, you, can, 
You can tell me the title that you know, because that sounds a lot prettier than Sorcerer's Apprentice. <laughs> well, it's different. It's very different. And But what I liked about that was that it was it, it was black and white, but there were the reds of the lipstick on the paper, and there were... Like, I felt like it wasn't black and white. I felt like everything was golden for some reason. There was something that was really magical about that sequence, the, the paper planes coming alive and going to catch the dude and bring it back to bring him back to the girl and that other plane going to see the girl and the, the guiding them so they would meet at the train station or the metro station. To me, that was like, and the music, ugh, that soundtrack is magical. I love you're, it you're, so much. You're making me want to watch it again immediately after this interview. Paperman, because it's just, it makes my heart beat like if I was in love for the first time. You know, that's how I feel like uh, when I watch Paperman, because it's such a magical short that's still ingrained in reality because I can tell like a dude working in an office with boring paper job, like boring job and like finally has something that sparks him, that gives him something to look for, you know, forward to. And then the girl is totally into it. She's like, oh, yeah, what's that plane flying in the flowers? And it's just like, ugh. I just, I don't know. I just love that so much. That's definitely um, my favorite animated sequence. <laughs> I love it. The, one of my favorite bits on that one short. And there's so much to love. You went down a list of so many good reasons why everyone should love the short. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love it when he gets up, when he tries to stand up, when he's on the when he's on the train or the oh, subway yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and he tries to get up and the, the, the paper, paper just like... slams him down. Yes. I love that sequence. It's just really mm-hmm. frustrating. Uh, it's frustrating because both sides are trying to get their motivations. Where the mm-hmm. guy's like, no, I'm not going to have this. And the paper's like, oh, yes, you are. Yeah. And there's like this kind of like defeat in his face. And yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's like I'm a little ex- kid. <laughs> like a little pouting kid. But it's like, a, it, it's like an adult who grew up too fast and didn't really fit in the adult world just yet. But then there was something that brings him back to, like, a joyful moment. And to me, that's super cool. I don't know. What words of what words of wisdom would you give to anyone aspiring to be a crowd artist? Oh, my. I mean, I guess the words could... Hmm. That's a really good question. So... Like I was saying, like crowd simulations is kind of a niche thing and you might or might not get the job. And me, it was a, a luck kind of element. I wasn't planning on doing it, but it just happened. And I think um, people who really want to get into crowds and I are already convinced that they want to do crowds, like they should really be as knowledgeable as possible about everything else that's related to crowds because it really makes a difference that you're not cramped into one position. It really makes a difference for your colleagues, for the people you work with. If you're knowledgeable about other things than just crowd simulations, they're gonna really appreciate you mentioning it. Or like, for instance, I had crowds where my characters were wearing very flowy clothing, like dresses and skirts. And it was always like me, I, I was asking other people, you know, are you going to need to simulate that dress? Are you going to need to do the the effects on the skirts to make them flowy? Or and they would really appreciate that I cared about that. That that I I gave them 
a minute to express themselves on, you know, what would make their life easier. And so it's a crowd is a teamwork, is a team like job. You're never really alone, like I said, because you work with so many other people. So I think it matters that people um, remember that, like that they remember that um, it's all a collaboration and it matters what comes before you and it matters where it goes after you're done.